folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And I'd like to take a quick second to thank all of you wonderful listeners out there. Contrary to Beans' snide remarks and jokes, we've actually been growing in listeners every week. Um, You like us. You really like us. (laughs) This week, uh, or last week rather, we had more listeners than we've ever had. Um, and that's because you guys are listening and you're telling your friends and you're sharing on social media and that really helps us get out there. And it turns out when people share our show with, uh, their friends, their friends like us too, and they start listening. So that makes me feel really warm and fuzzy. Yeah, me too, man. I gotta admit. And I want to thank you guys for that. And with that kind of support, uh, we can't go wrong. We'll be doing this show for a long, long time. So, uh, again, thank you guys. Uh, Theory, you want to tell the folks what this show's about? Well, actually, uh, so what we always say all the time is as that listener base keeps increasing, we want to hear your guys' feedback and suggestions. We want you to argue with us or, you know, side with us if you feel like that's Call me an idiot. Yeah. And uh, we actually got a really good suggestion from a listener, Brock, who said, hey, why don't you do a listener Q&A episode. So that's what we did. We, you know, hit all our various social media platforms and put the call out and got as many questions as we could. And uh, so today... All 12 uh, of them are uh, from Theory's mom. Yeah, yeah. My mom just, you know, she worked her ass off submitting questions this week. And (laughs) and let's give a big round of applause to my mom, huh? But no, uh, so today we have, you know, some really good questions from you guys. um, And we are going to answer them to an extent kind of off the cuff, off the top of our head. Now, there's a couple of you that hate us that ask really specific questions. <laughs> so we spent a little time digging into a news story or two. But for the most part today, you're largely getting sense and theories, opinions. Right. Yeah. We didn't do a lot of uh, factual research. You're, you're, no. you're going to get a pretty uneducated opinion, especially from me, because I've been sleeping for like six days in a row. So, <laughs> you but know, the cool thing is... What is, it is. Uh, this is certainly going to be a wild ride. We have questions covering everything from the Rothschilds to fuel efficiency to Hollywood. To QAnon. To QAnon. So, yes, we uh, it is a smorgasbord of crazy topics for you guys today. So let's kick it off with the first question. Uh, comes in from listener Stephen. He asks, what is your take on rolling back fuel efficiency standards? And... Being the uneducated schlub that I am that totally doesn't run a podcast on politics and culture, <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. So apparently, um, Obama set up some fuel standards for cars sold in America um, at 50 miles per gallon target for 2025. This was in large response to global warming. Right. And now Trump wants to roll that back to 37 miles per gallon by 2025. Uh, and as far as I can tell, he has a few pretty flimsy, <laughs> pretty flimsy arguments for he, this. He, I guess we will call them arguments. Yes. So the first argument is that people will drive more if travel is cheaper, which increases the odds of an accident. Yes. And in breaking news, going outside increases your odds of being struck by lightning. Owning a chainsaw <laughs> increases the odds of chainsaw accidents. I mean, what I, what kind of logic can you use here? First off, the, the logical progression of this argument is to just go ahead and stay inside. Are we going to tariff cars? Are we going to yeah. tariff driving cars? Like, no, it's, it's, it's insane to me that, that anybody would like get up in front of people and pose this as a serious argument. It's like, well, 
you know, if, if we make the cars more efficient, then people are going to use them more. And if they use them more, they might get hurt. You know, I mean, like I, it, it's, it's just, I mean, bananas. crowded roads, it, it, there's truth to it. I can't, I cannot argue the truth behind sure. it. Crowded roads lead to increased accidents. Yeah. Every time you get in a car, you have a chance of getting smashed by a semi yes. or running into another car. So yes, driving more will lead hands down to well, more accidents. I think we should also increase the cost of plane tickets. Right. Because getting on planes increases the odds that you'll die in a plane crash. There you go. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> the, it, the logic is, is bullshit. It, it's true, but it makes no sense to me. Right, right. I'll I'll and actually, in, in reading about it, we, we found out, because uh, this, thank you, Stephen, this is most certainly one of the ones that we had to read about. But we found out that the Trump administration is citing something called the rebound effect. Uh, you know, for every certain amount that you improve fuel efficiency, driving increases by a certain percentage. Turns out the Obama administration had looked at that when they instituted, uh, you know, their their 50 mile per gallon uh, uh, cutoff that they wanted. Um, but then the Trump administration has come back and said that they looked at it and found that Obama was wrong. Uh, it's actually a doubling increase of the amount that people will drive. And that's. It's a dubious number that kind of makes you wonder if anybody in the Trump administration has ever done science or math. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so, it, okay. So the problem here again is even if their numbers are right again, yes, the argument is you might get hurt. So don't do it. I mean, so, yeah, it's, get out it's, here. it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So their second argument is that fuel efficient vehicles will necessarily be more expensive which will slow the rate of people buying the cars with the advanced safety features. And again, this is one of those things that's like, yeah, that's that's true. You know, if I can't yeah. afford the new $36,000 Camry with the safety features, I'm probably going to either drive my old car longer, which is less safe, or buy a used car, right. which does not have the improved safety features. But again, this is one of those things like you're you're on the premise of saving lives and and I'm just not sure when we're talking about fuel standards for global warming is a bird in the hand worth two in the bush. <laughs> yeah. Like if we're going to, we're saving a couple thousand lives this year, but we're potentially saving the entire world from, from extinction and heat death with global warming. Like <laughs> yeah. give me a break. Yeah, buddy. I mean, at what some if- point you gotta, you gotta make a sacrifice somewhere. Right. Well, my, my problem with it though, is that like, Maybe not immediately, maybe not within the next year or something. Maybe it takes a little while for it to balance out. But if the price of cars goes up because of safety standards, they don't stay there forever. If people stop buying cars, guess what the car companies do? <laughs> the price starts going down. They don't just eat it, right? And and for him, for Trump to make this argument and say, well, we've got to watch, you know, putting in these emission standards that are going to drive up the price of cars because then people aren't going to be able to buy the really safe cars. But I also want to put a tariff on all these things that go into the cost of cars oh, and drive them say, up by like two, three thousand dollars. Let's tariff steel until cars are two thousand dollars more expensive. Yeah, I mean, but it, don't do the fuel the fuel standards because that, it'll make them two thousand dollars more expensive. At that point, you've just said, "Oh well, you know what I got going on with China is more important than global warming and stuff," and that's a matter of opinion. But it doesn't have anything to do with saving anybody's life. No, you know uh, what I mean. That's that's very clear here. I think the Trump administration is, this is weird. Yeah. I'll put it like that. To me, this is weird. And, and the third one, the third <laughs> argument is even weirder. Um, but again, kind of makes sense it's in a way. Got a kernel of truth. So one of the ways that car manufacturers are increasing fuel efficiency 
is by making lighter vehicles. Um, you know, obviously a lighter vehicle will get better gas mileage. So it's an easy way to shave off those numbers. Right. Um, the thing is that lighter cars have a markedly higher fatality rate in traffic accidents, right. uh, which makes sense. Uh, but, but that rate is more related to the disproportionate weight of two cars getting in an accident, right? right so, right. so an SUV at 6,000 pounds smashing into a Camry at 2,000 pounds uh, is going to be devastating yeah, to that Camry. It's so, it. so if we're making the Camrys lighter, then yes, we're kind of creating this imbalance uh, where those people are more at risk. But I think what we found is when you actually look at it, a lot of their efforts in making vehicles lighter are actually making the SUV and the F-150 <laughs> and the various big vehicles lighter and not so much the Camrys and the smaller vehicles, which actually in the end helps. Right. It makes, fatality. it makes everyone, everyone safer. So heavier vehicles are, are essentially more safe. Um, but it's more, again, it's more about the proportional weight between right. the, the, between the collider. Well, and there's also something to be said for the, the size has a lot to do with it as well. Mm. So, you know, if you're in a, a lighter car, but that still has, you know, more stuff in the way of say, whatever's impacting you hitting your body, that's, that still helps even though the car itself is lighter. Right, so size plays a role in this too. That right, if your crumple zone's bigger, more of the force can be dissipated as it crumples towards you. Exactly, uh, and and the force is dissipated before it smashes you into a bloody pulp. And in their analysis, that's like one of the things that you know the Trump administration seemingly wanted to just leave out and just not worry about. Um, but for me, also, if, if okay, if we set a standard and we say, hey, car companies, uh, you've got to hit fifty miles per gallon by the you know this year. And car companies are like, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just make the cars like super light. And then people start dying all over the country and crashes because they're super light. What's going to happen? The car companies are going to have to change their approach. And if they reach a, a situation where they cannot hit 50 miles per gallon without making the cars too dangerous for people to drive, then they're going to tell the government, that. right? You know what then I'm saying. Then we have a chance for dialogue. The car, but that's not what's happening here. The car right. companies aren't coming to the government saying, "Help, we can't, yeah. we can't meet these these standards." No. Yeah. In fact, actually, the car companies, it, it, in some of them, I can't say all of them, but some of the car lobbyist groups are like, "Yo, we we've already kind of set up on the fifty mile per gallon <laughs> thing. Like, please don't change this because car development takes like three or four years. They're designing the cars right now." for 2023 2024 well, well that's an interesting point too because because lowering the standard um doesn't necessarily mean car companies can't produce vehicles that get better gas mileage and i think that that's a driving factor in a lot of people's purchase decisions yeah i think the the weird kind of imbalance comes into play where uh you know maybe toyota has plans for for 50 miles per gallon that they've been working on for 10 years and Ford can now come in and make cheaper cars that only get 37 miles per gallon. Yeah. And that's really where I think Trump's angle is on this. You know, we talked about it a little bit. And and I think he's deathly afraid of of car prices going up so high that Americans are like, I can't afford a car under the Trump administration. Yeah. He's deathly afraid of that. The tariffs yeah. have, have have threatened to raise the price of cars. This is like a double whammy. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it, I think he sees it as a way. Um, to kind of hedge that effect, I think he'd have a hard time getting away with 
car prices going up four or five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that two thousand dollar increase from his tariffs, he feels like he can swing come the election. Yeah. Uh, but if it gets too high and people are like, ah, I can't afford it, then then he's done. No, it's it's definitely interesting con- to consider the further repercussions of the tariff policy if he then turns around and tries to mitigate the costs that the tariffs are going to cost us by repealing stuff like this. You know, oh my gosh. Uh, So Stephen has another question for us. He says, uh, what's your take on the GOP tax bill? And Stephen, I kind of hate you right now because uh, this is the kind of question that people spend all kinds of time researching. (laughs) And uh, well, we didn't want to spend all kinds of time researching. In fact, I specifically asked for light questions. (laughs) This, my friend, is not light work. But you know what? You're a dedicated listener and we love you. So uh, we're going to try to approach this. Um, so my insight into this tax bill is fairly limited. Um, but I will say that my tax guy says, A, the child tax credit is doubling. Right. Which I think for uh, the average family is a, is a good thing. Uh, I think that helps a lot of small folks out. He also said he swears up and down that everyone on W-2s is going to see a large increase in their returns. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing too to me. Uh, when I looked into it briefly, it looks like the middle rich are going to be taking a hit, and they're going to be paying more. And that's like from 150k to 750k or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know that's okay with me. I think we need that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our tax system and 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 the loopholes and things. I think they unfairly advantage the wealthy. Now. You know, when I say wealthy, I'm not necessarily talking about 150 to 750 K. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, man, the billionaire class gets huge breaks. Right. Um, they get more shell games and loopholes and, and ways to divert their money and not pay taxes on it and, and avoid social security taxes and, and this, that, and the other. So this is very much a big break for the 1%. Yeah. And I'm not sure. That's what we need right now. I mean, right. granted, uh, you know, a lot of his base is lower income and they're going to see that uh, that return as a big boon. And maybe they're going to go out and put a roof on the house. Uh, maybe they're going to get their timing belt fixed. They're going to go on a big Disney vacation. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Yeah. I, you know, I like that. That that helps. Um, but at what cost? Yeah. No, I think I think, uh, of course, I'm I'm happy. Anytime that, you know, the people, the most disadvantaged economically, anytime they get a little help, a little boost from the tax cuts, that's great. I'm a guy who leans right. Not a big fan of taxes to begin with. So I, <laughs> I, I would like to limit them uh, to the extent I can. But when I looked at this tax bill, um, there's a lot of things that gave me pause. One of them was the way it went down. And believe it, this, this isn't propaganda or anything. There were literally lobbyists writing stuff into the margins of the tax bill, like as right before they voted on it. I can't even. I mean, yeah, it, it was crazy. Secondly, the, that middle rich portion, right? So one of, the, one of the contentions I've made is that there is this belief out there that I think people like Bernie and other people have helped to kind of cement that the rich in this country are a, a different swath than, than what they actually are. And what I mean by that is, we we say you you just said the middle rich and you were talking about people who made like 150 to 750. Yeah. Uh to me there's a good portion of those people who are squarely the middle class. Not not the middle rich, you know? And so what I see is I see that, you know, the disadvantaged got a boost from the tax bill and that's great. 
Um, the top, you know, the billionaires and everything, they get all these loopholes. That's awful. But then it's double awful because most of the burden went squarely on that middle class. And I think that it's easy for me, someone who, you know, I, I grew up pretty poor. And I remember I had a friend in high school and I think his, his parents probably made somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, a hundred to 120 K and, and at the time combined. And at the time I thought like, I was like, Oh man, they're like, they're rich. <laughs> and as I've gotten older and I've looked around, I've, I've come to realize that no, not really, man, they, they were struggling. They didn't have the ability to just go out and put a roof on their home. Right. You know, and that's who this tax bill hit. And not to mention, um, you know, when it came time for elderly care, Mm-hmm. Um, all the, all the money they'd saved disappeared. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it waned away. I mean, I, I think I've read that, that the average 67 year old needs a million dollars in savings yeah. to get to end of life right now. Yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about, you know, $120,000 a year with, uh, maybe a hundred thousand dollar mortgage, mm-hmm. uh, car payments, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the amount of funds starts dwindling and the amount in your savings uh, doesn't increase as fast as you'd right. like it to. And by the time you're 67, you don't have enough for, for end of life. So I, you know, I think when you put it that way, I tend to think of people that make, you know, $150,000 a year as, as pretty rich. Right. That's because I live, uh, below my means <laughs> Yeah, and, and I live on very little, you know, I live in a, in a cheap house. I buy used cars. Um, that's my lifestyle, but you pointed it out really well. You said, what about all the people who drive the economy? What about the people who want to buy new cars every right. eight years? Yeah. I'm not one of those people. Right. So I'm able to live, um, you know, at this, at this lower level of income. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much so. I think people that make, you know, 150,000, maybe even up to 350,000. Yeah. Maybe they're not as well, rich as I, as I like to think. You know, as we discussed this, like last night, you know, I think I, I said to you, I said, those are the people who are going to go out and like remodel their kitchen. Those are the people who are going to give, you know, uh, employment and money to contractors to do this, that, or the other. And so it's not to say, you know, I said that Bernie has helped drive that some. Here's what I mean. I, I, we have become so focused on the rich. And I get it. I get the 1% argument. I really do. And not to say that that movement hasn't been really good about saying 1%. But I think that sometimes it, it overlaps into my definition of rich. And I'm gonna be honest with you, man. At points in my life, my definition of rich was like seventy five thousand a year. <laughs> my definition of rich has been fifty grand a year. You know what I'm saying? Like that's oh man, fifty grand a year. You know, so so when people say rich, we hear the word, and we all have a different definition of. It. And so I think there's a swath of people that are like, you know, oh well, uh, you know, good man, it, it caught the middle rich and stuff. And you know, if we get up into somebody making maybe seven fifty to a million a year. You know, oh. I'll start. I'll start backing off. And that's everything. rich, man. But, I think half a million a year. That's rich. You can go buy a hundred eighty thousand dollars house. Maybe you're in California. You got to buy a three hundred eighty thousand dollars. Well, that's house. that's I what I was know. getting ready to say. That's something else to consider. Is because think about the fact that you know I mentioned my my friend's parents who were making one twenty. That you know they were able to appear well off to me because of where we live. If I take them and I put them out in California. 128 nothing. That's Jack. true. You know what I mean? That's, so that's so really it true. Varies. And living where we are, we are in one of the lowest cost of living right. um areas in the in the United States. Hands down, we are yeah. at the very bottom of the list. So that very much colors yeah. our idea about wealth so, and money. So for me, the tax bill was like kind of the the worst of everything. And there's I mean, well, not the worst of everything. Like like I said, I do like the fact that, you know, uh lower income people got some help. 
Uh, I hate the fact people with kids, man, doubling the tax, the, the child credit is huge. It's a good thing, but like I, they're with with my tax bills, with what I want done with taxes. It's such a longer term plan. Like I want to, and to me, sometimes like to sit here and cheer on this tax bill because these people got a boost. Like I can cheer that boost and hate this tax. Bill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. and that and that's how I I kind of feel about it. I think that that issue really avails itself in the next question that Stephen asked. Stephen had a Stephen had just like a trifecta. What was it? Four or five <laughs> questions. That were solid. Uh, he asked, what about the additional $100 billion that's being proposed? And that made me scratch my head. I don't know what he's talking about. So I said, right. Theory, why don't you spend an entire like seven hours <laughs> yeah. the night before the show figuring out what the heck he's talking about? Right. So why don't you lay it on us and tell us what the heck he's talking about? All right. So basically, the Trump administration is mulling allowing the Treasury Department to reinterpret the word cost in such a way that it would, in effect, unilaterally, unilaterally thank you, uh, and, you know, I mean, without congressional approval, be able to levy a $100 billion tax cut for investors. At issue is whether or not inflation should be taxed on capital gains. So mm-hmm. the idea is if I invest $1,000 and my money earns $500, but $100 of that is just inflation, should I be taxed on the $500 or on the $400? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and I, and I'm I'm not a big fan of that kind of measure. I understand like uh uh encouraging investment, mm-hmm. but uh when when the coffers are already low, you know, this goes back to what you were talking about with the with the tax plan. When the coffers are already low, it doesn't make sense uh for me to give big tax breaks yeah. to wealthy investors. You've got a whole bunch of people uh, who don't have the money to accept the risk of investment, mm-hmm. and they're keeping their relatively small pittance uh, in their savings accounts, and they're very much affected by inflation. Right, right. So to me, uh, to mitigate that risk for the investor class is just increasing the wealth gap. Yeah. And, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about the wealth gap in further shows plenty, yeah. um, but that's something right now I don't, I don't feel like that's a healthy thing to do. Right. No, I understand. I I do see, uh, you know, it, it does seem at face value to be unfair for you to have to pay taxes on money that, you know, in in a way you didn't really earn. Like, you know, it's it's like moot money. You know what I mean? I can see that. Yeah. And but the problem, if anything, is how they're trying to do this. Right. So a 2002 Supreme Court ruling involving Verizon and the FCC may give precedent for, you know, regulators or the Treasury Department to, you know, redefine or reinterpret a word. But it's it's of note that Bush Sr. back in 1992 thought about doing this exact same thing and had his DOJ look into it and everything, and they decided that it would be grossly unconstitutional. And I mean, think about it. We're talking about letting the Treasury impose a tax cut by fiat. That's ridiculous. They're, they're going to say, well, I'm just going to redefine this word, and that gives a tax cut that Congress gets no oversight or approval on. Those are unelected, appointed figures. Like Those kind of decisions need to be made through Congress. That, That's the whole point of a system of checks and balances. That is a lot of power to give the executive. And, and not only that, it opens up sort of a, a Pandora's box because – now, anywhere that the Treasury Department defines cost is subject to that definition, right? Mm. So you can't say cost doesn't include inflation over here and it does include inflation over there without, you know, I mean, the lawsuits would be endless. You know yeah, I mean? you're opening up all kinds of doors and unknowns and, and who knows? Who knows what will happen? Yeah. 
But again, I at the end of the day, is as much as like, you know, being taxed on inflation seems somewhat unfair to me and everything. And again, as much as I, I like tax cuts, I like to encourage investment. Um, now, now's just not the time. And it's kind of the problem that I have with the, the, the tax bill itself. To me, what you do is you cut spending, right? Then you create a surplus and then see how much of that money you can give back through tax cuts. Mm. You know what I'm saying? To, to encourage investment or what have you. But this balance whole, the balance the books first. <laughs> exactly. But this whole I'm going to cut taxes and somehow that's going to force you to cut spending. No, that's like well, that's playing into the worst uh, the worst beasts of the the partisan argument. You right? Know isn't I mean? that I was going to say? Isn't that the argument against against Republicans though? Is that they is that they do these things to mm-hmm. create a larger deficit? And then they use that deficit as leverage to cut right. programs and spending. Yeah, no, and I absolutely hate that they do it. I hate the fact that they want to talk about tax cuts and raise military spending. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like you've got to get your finances in order. Nobody on earth says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work less and then, you know, bring in less money through my job. And then I'll figure out how I need to trim back my <laughs> No, no, no. You, you cut back on your spending and say, hey, I don't need to work as much. That's how that works. Right. That is fiscal responsibility. Hey, Republicans, I thought that was supposed to be you. Nah, yeah. and that's so. part of the reason I think you say you, you lean right, yeah. but you're definitely not a supporter <laughs> of the Republican Party. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So Stephen had, uh, had a couple more questions here that we'll touch on briefly. Uh, he said, are there candidates in the 2018 midterms that you guys support? And he asked, are there any immediate practical political actions that you can take to make progress towards your vision of America? Well, as far as midterm candidates, um, I can tell you that we haven't looked at it real hard just yet. I'm sure between now and November, we will definitely spend some time on that. Absolutely. As a general rule of thumb, I can tell you if it's a candidate who is hardcore into the Republican, you know, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or those leftists or those guys on the right. Probably not going to co-sign. Yeah, that's that's probably <laughs> not our guy. Um, as far as our, our practical political actions, that's kind of what we tried to touch on in episode 32. And we're going to continue building episodes around that uh, yeah, going forward. I think that's going to be um, a main focus of the show moving forward is um, showing people how they can get involved and and make meaningful change in society, whether that's yeah. uh, a person to person basis mm-hmm. or whether that's actual policies you can call your representatives and and ask them to push. Um, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. So, so hopefully you'll uh, you'll keep listening, Stephen, and uh, you'll enjoy those episodes and give us feedback and uh, ask more questions. We love it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the cues. Yeah. Uh, next up, we come to Adam. Uh, Adam uh, really hated us. He asked, uh, is there any legitimacy to the idea that there is a global federal banking system ran by an elite family or families hell-bent on running the world's government from the shadows? See also the Rothschilds, Illuminati, or the New World Order. And this was this was another like five-part question, so we're going to kind of take it in parts. And, and I'd have to say, Adam, like, yes, of course, there's some legitimacy to that. Um, why else would we be having this conversation about money and politics? Uh, look at Citizens United. Look at Super PACs. Uh, if you don't think there's super wealthy elite families trying to pull strings in politics, you're kind of uh, a little daft, you know? Um, look at the Koch brothers, look at George Soros, Robert Mercer, who, uh, you know, funded Ted Cruz with millions and millions of dollars. Uh, do I think they're all evil and they're all connected in some, you know, web uh, mm-hmm. of, of dark agenda? No, 
Uh, I think some of them are genuinely, genuinely interested in making the world a better place. I think um, they come from, from many perspectives and they're doing different things. I I don't think that, uh, you know, rich people are all evil and they're only interested in consolidating power and wealth. Um, Although I do think there's, there's some overlap there. You know, I think there are some rich people who don't give a damn for, uh, for the common man. Well, I mean, I, well, think about it like this. I mean, what would you do if you had money, right? O- of course, like if you had the money, if you had the means, you would advocate for your positions. And I'm sure those positions among the rich and the money delete are varied to a degree as much as they would be anybody else, but also very much in the context of the fact that they are all rich elite people who are going to do things that benefit rich elite people. Right. You know what I'm saying? You're not, you're not going to argue against your own interests. Now, it, the idea is you know hopefully showing well, them that everyone's interest. See, I kind of disagree because I think there's the Warren Buffets out there who who are saying I'm you know I'm a billionaire. Go ahead and tax me more. That's a, that's arguing against their own interest in the interest of the common man. I don't. Well, see, that's that's actually what I was getting ready to say. I don't think it is. I think Warren Buffett has realized that everyone's interest is within his. Ah, interest, I like you it. know, and that's actually if you get into like philosophical high-minded libertarianism supposedly that's what's going to fix everything right like the dude doesn't pollute because he realizes having a clean earth is within his interest ah, right? I, I like that so you know that's it's true in some cases you know we're, we're getting a little bit away from the Rothschilds but my my personal opinion as far as the Rothschilds and the, the global banking conspiracy is is that it's just it's just too much it's it's too it's 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 this huge web and all that stuff, and no, I can't. And you can't. can blame it all on the Rothschilds. Yeah, you know, actually, like- one of my one of my favorite arguments against it is if we look at the Rothschilds, that conspiracy, right? Like, when have they failed? And it, and if you can't point to me at a place where they failed, if like all of your stuff, well, this, you know, when they did this, that worked out for them because of that. Well, then they're perfect at playing both sides of every single thing that's ever happened for hundreds of years. Yeah, at that point, it's Superman, it's Clark Kent. Yeah, it's, this it's not is, the Rothschilds, comic it's the book Kents. stuff. Yeah. You know? Now, that's not to say that there isn't like a basis for people to to jump to that conclusion. I think they're jumping <laughs> to the conclusion, but as Adam Adam asks here, he says, What credible arguments are there are there? Can the Rothschilds and De Beers be written off as savvy businessmen with well established connections? Well, if we want to talk credible evidence, I'd say, you know, David Icke says there's lizard people shape shifting into humans, <laughs> uh, you know, running our world governments. Uh, <laughs> I personally think that they're immortal, pale faced, man like cave dwellers living in hollow earth that only come out to eat babies under the light of the full moon to gain their power on the global stage. Uh, are either of those things credible? I, yeah, your your fever dreams aside, I I don't think that's necessarily what he was talking about. What he was saying is, so we do have, uh, you know, we can point to historical facts that the Rothschilds existed. Uh, you know, the Rothschilds set up a bank network all over Europe that was heavily instrumental in uh, the various countries that they were placed in as politics. You know, you've got a Rothschild Bank in London, a Rothschild Bank in Vienna and Paris, you know, the major banking centers of Europe. And of course, you know, uh, at one point, uh, the Bank of England had to take a loan from a Rothschild bank. I sure. mean, the, the Rothschilds funded both sides of the Napoleonic Wars. Right, uh, right. In fact, I found some really old newspaper quotes that do illustrate the wealth and power of the Rothschilds quite well. Uh, Niles Weekly Register in 1835 put it, The Rothschilds are the wonders of modern banking, peering above kings, rising higher than emperors, and holding a whole continent in the hollow of their hands. Not a cabinet moves without their advice. And of Nathan Rothschild, uh, the head of the English branch, the newspaper said, 
He holds the keys to peace or war. They are the brokers and counselors of the kings of Europe and the Republican chiefs of America. What more can they desire? Yeah, so there's no question that they were very successful. There's no question that they were placed in, in very key positions. But I, I just, it breaks down like, to, again, to me, we have to draw a line. It breaks down when we start saying, that they engineered the Napoleonic Wars mm. or that, you know, uh, there's this famous story that Nathan Rothschild uh, found out the, the, the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo and did this mad dash across uh, Belgium and went to London and sold bonds to make it look like Napoleon had won. So then the market got heavily invested that way. And then the next day the news arrives that, you know, England had won and Nathan Rothschild is set up to make a killing. Cleaned and up, makes a yeah. killing. Like we start to attribute these like superhuman feats and, and, oh, you know, well, they engineered that America would be founded like this and the Jekyll Island meeting and all that. Those things happened. And, and, and I have no question that sometimes like the Rockefellers or, you know, various other families of great means, you see the same people in the same places. But it's kind of like this. If, if Rothschild, if the original Meyer Rothschild, if he was a successful banker, and he told his five sons to go to five important places in Europe. Of course, the Rothschilds, if they were good at banking, ended up with that influence. <laughs> Did they do anything outside or unbecoming what a normal banker would do? And I think, the, again... I, I think the answer is yes. I think, I think banking uh, is a greedy business. And I think that, that power corrupts. Um, you yeah. know, these are things that I, that, that I hold to be self-evident. So, yeah, I think... I think the ultra wealthy have probably sacrificed uh, the common good and sacrificed uh, ideals uh, to get where they are. Can I can I point to it? No. Do, do right. I care? Not really, because e assuming that all these broad sweeping conspiracies are true, it's checkmate. Right. You know, we're we're done for. So I cannot, in good faith, operate on that argument. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like the the cognitive dissonance of that causes me to just go. Eh, let's just leave that off. Like, I don't care. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. I'm still going to work within the framework that I have in front of me mm -hmm. to make things better. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe that means one day rubbing elbows with, with Rothschilds and Rockefellers and going, Hey guys, here's a, here's a new, better way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Adam, uh, he finally goes on to ask, can the world's current wars really be related to the federal banking system? And if so, is it plausible that American, uh, America, England, et cetera, are just guns for hire for these federal banks? And, and I'd say absolutely that's a resounding yes. Uh, we're talking about a system that, that holds everything together, the glue of the world economy, uh, people for whom money is absolutely no object, to think they wouldn't take steps militarily or influence uh, military might uh, to further their goals, that's kind of a joke, right? Right. Um, but at the same time, when you when you ask if America and England are just guns for hire for the federal banks, um, I I think we have to look at what's going on in the world. If if these shady organizations uh, were interested in only power and keeping the common man down, then then how come we have like Steven Pinker's analysis of of world poverty saying that that world poverty is decreasing yeah. and the worst of the worst nations on the planet are getting better. Right. Um, infrastructure is being built. Uh, poverty is being eliminated. Hunger is being eliminated. Uh, medical treatments and, and medical outcomes are, are going up. Um, so it's hard for me to square those two things of this, right. of this shady, ultra powerful elite 
that's losing so bad in their war to hold everyone down that the, that the world is rising at the same time. I, just, yeah. I you know, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, I think, I think ultimately it comes down to recognizing the difference between influence and control. Like there's no doubt that they're trying to influence things. They're trying to push things. Of course they would like us to go fight wars for them and, and gain them these things, but they, they don't have complete control. They can't see the future. They don't, they, I, I don't think that they're reptiles. You know what I mean? <laughs> they so, do eat babies in the moonlight though. The, that, at least the ones they listen to. No, that, that is true. Um, speaking of, uh, conspiracies, uh, let's, let's move on to the hot one because we had a listener Vlad ask Q question mark, <laughs> just plain Q. Yeah. And that's not Q for question. That's Q for Q anon. And overnight, uh, you know, Q anon is something I've, I've looked at before, but overnight it blew up into the mainstream media right. and just about every single, uh, media organization on the planet has started talking about Q in the past week right. uh, from when this show airs. And I got to say, man, Q is one of those things. It's, it's like an ARG to me. Everything Q, and, and for those of you that, that, that don't know yet, for some reason, QAnon is a poster on an anonymous message board called 8chan, started on 4chan, I think. Anyway, um, he makes all of these uh, really what's the word ambiguous ambiguous yeah. posts uh they sound like codes um he uses initials for people's names uh he doesn't spell things out very clearly at all he just says you know here's piece of information here's a piece of information you guys go put the puzzle pieces together and the and the idea is that he is supposed to be an insider within the government who is working uh, or he's letting us know that what's actually going on is the Trump Russia thing is is largely a smokescreen. There's actually this other investigation going on into child sex rings and the deep state, and that Trump is you know he's he's taking them down. He's draining the swamp like he told us he was going to do and beyond, and that we're not seeing that they're using kind of the Mueller investigation for cover, right? So that they can work behind the scenes. And meanwhile, he says there are you know thousands of sealed indictments uh, against these elite uh, child sex slavers. And you know what? If that's true, more freaking power to Q and more power to Trump. <laughs> if it comes up in 2020 and Trump has eliminated child trafficking from the global elite, yeah. like I'll be happy. And let's be honest. Child trafficking is is huge. Yeah. There are hundreds of thousands of children that go missing in America every year. Yeah. Um, and many of them end up in dungeons. Right. Uh, and, and let's not joke about that. But that's not to say that Q has got his finger on the pulse of what's going on because right. all of his posts, he's not, there's no real evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, he, he posts all these ambiguous puzzle pieces and says, go figure them out. And then 20 different people will analyze it. And I've seen crazy stuff. I've seen yeah. like Bible code stuff like, yeah. oh, look at the time signature here. It was 721. And oh, there's a 21 on on Trump's post today. Yeah. And that's obviously a correlation. He said the number 13. Yeah, yeah he yeah. said the number 13. So this gets into really ridiculous territory real quick. The other thing is like if you're an insider and you want to spread a clear message, mm -hmm. then be clear on the message. Ambiguity by default gives you gives you a sort of cover. Um so if you're trying to influence uh minds and divert attention, ambiguity allows you to fall back on on random happenstance connections. Mm -hmm. Um you know, by saying Mueller, uh 
721. Connect the dots. Yeah. You can go pick patterns out from the ether yeah. and connect those things and convince yourself no, that, oh, Q's right because I've connected these two things. And we've seen that time and time again. I think what's really unfortunate about the QAnon thing is that whether you know, whether it's intentional, whether it's the people interpreting it and then feeding it to other people, however, however this came to be, it has unfortunately created a situation where there is a narrative that exists for a diehard Trump supporter to hold on to. That's right. That, that in theory, Trump could take us to very dangerous places and that Trump supporter could be holding on to the QAnon theory and walk right along with him, whistling like ain't nothing and, wrong. And that's the scariest part. And, and there's this thread that runs through the QAnon circles of the Great Awakening, they call it. And it's and it's very much non-denominationally spiritual. It's almost mm-hmm. a almost a Christian message that, you know, we're cleansing the world of this magnificent evil. And if you'll just wait long enough, you'll see what it's all about. Just mm-hmm. wait, just wait. And and he even addresses things that don't make sense, you know, and 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 says, Well, it's all just part of the big plan. You know, don't yeah. look over here. Don't worry about what Sessions is doing. This is all just yeah, a big yeah. smoke screen. Trust sessions, trust sessions. Yeah. It's it's really scary, man. Yeah. Um, and if it was real, I would expect it to be much more pointed mm-hmm. um, and much more clear because transparency, uh, you know, light is the enemy of 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 darkness. Right. So if you're right. fighting darkness, bring it to light. Yeah. Don't let people scramble around and find these tenuous connections. I, I will say, if you're interested, follow Q. Mm. Uh, go ahead and read what he's talking. Cause I've, I've, I've run across plenty of really interesting articles. I've learned quite a bit about how the government functions, mm-hmm. um, from, from kind of researching the connections of Q, but keep in mind that all of this stuff is, is unverified Yeah, and, and very much and in, in many regards, unverifiable to, to, and unverifiable. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. We did find out that there are uh, a lot of of sealed documents in the court mm-hmm. system this year. There are an abnormal amount of sealed documents. Mm-hmm. We don't know if they're indictments. Q is saying there's thousands of indictments against uh, you know child pornographers and things. Yeah, we won't know until they're unsealed or until the indictments drop. I you know yeah I I don't know. So guys, eh, hold your breath. I wouldn't listen to what the MSM is saying either. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'd go look at it just just with bated breath. It's a it's a thing that's out there. I I wouldn't treat it as anything else right now. Yeah, you know indeed, I mean? indeed. Uh, Duncan asks us, uh, what are your thoughts on capital punishment? Do some people deserve to die? When? And is it just for the state to do it? That's, that's a really interesting question to me. And, and I think I have to approach this question in, in gradations, in a, in a gradient, because essentially if I say the state does not have the authority or should not have the authority um, to kill someone, to, to take their life. How can I say they have the authority to imprison someone? How can I say they have the authority to levy any sort of punishment, mm-hmm. uh, against anyone? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of a slippery slope. So, you know, personally, I can't imagine being the judge that has to hand down a death sentence. Right. At the same time, I can imagine circumstances where I would absolutely be willing to hand out a death sentence and perhaps mm-hmm. even carry it out myself. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, uh, the, the cases of, of rapes and molestations, uh-huh. um, children involved, um, the case of, of multiple murders. Yeah. There, there comes a point where I think as a society, we have to protect ourselves 
yeah. uh, from from the sickest and the worst evils. So I I am very much in favor of capital punishment, but mm-hmm. I think it takes a lot of discretion, and I and I yeah. think we need to continue to be wary. I like the idea that there's a long waiting period before the sentence is carried out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in many cases, we've seen evidence come up that that exonerates people on death row. I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I think with any form of justice, any form of punishment, we're going to be wrong sometimes. Yeah. And, and that's a burden that as a society, we all carry. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a necessary. one. Yeah. For me, it's, it's actually, it's somewhat similar to my view on universal healthcare, right? It's not something I'm particularly fond of, but I think it's something that we have to do. And if we have to do it, then I want us to be as wary of it as possible, right? So I, I echo the same things you said about I want DNA tests and triple-checked and verified. I want us to do everything we can to make sure that we are only executing the people who absolutely deserve it. But, yes, I do believe that there are people who absolutely deserve it. And I think that we have to have that punishment on the table to discourage uh, you know, some of the worst behaviors that you're John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in, in a sense, uh, in a way, I think that, you know, it's easy for me to say that, I guess, but I think that death is preferable to 60 years in a small box, you know what I mean? Which is life imprisonment, you know what I mean? So I, I have reservations about it, but at the end of the day, I think I have to support it. And, you know, as far as the question is, is it just for the state to do it? I think the state almost has to do it because the alternative is mob that, justice, you know, yeah, that we're just in mob justice. Lord knows that that almost never works out. Mm, so, yeah, indeed. Uh, David asks us, are the U S and China fighting a war throughout Africa? Oh, I hate you, David. I hate you, David. Cause, uh, this is another one of those things where, man, we were trying not to research. We wanted these questions to be light. Uh, but yet again, I just passed this one directly off to theory and said, Hey, why don't you spend six or seven hours researching our war in Africa? I got it. But in actually to tell you the truth, I, I learned something because I was not aware of how crazy things had gotten in sub-Saharan Africa. So we are certainly, uh, fighting a cold war at least, uh, in Africa. And it's one where the U S is, is kind of getting its ass kicked. Uh, the last 15 years has seen an increasing military presence in Africa for the United States, and it's been under the guise of the war on terror. And and we got an interesting comment uh, on the thread here. Another listener, Jarvis, piped in uh, to say, don't know about China, but I know we are. I was deployed to Djibouti, Liberia, and Egypt for, quote unquote, peacekeeping missions and training troops. He says, hell, I felt like I was in more danger there than in Iraq almost. That was in 2004, 05, 06, and 08. And since that time, our presence has only increased. We have something like 1,500 boots on the ground officially in advisory roles in the sub-Saharan continent. Advisory roles. And we're talking about Navy SEALs, Green Berets, and the like. Uh, Those troops are taking an increasingly active role in patrolling and working alongside the domestic forces. That sounds a little like early Vietnam to me. That sounds a lot like early Vietnam. So here we are. uh, We've got our forces on the ground over there. Hey, it's okay. They're just going to train them how to fight, you know, and fight for democracy and all that stuff. Oh, we better, we better actually send them out on the patrols and, and oh well now our patrols are in danger. So we might want to go ahead and put a base there and Uh stuff. And before you know it, Africa is starting to look a lot like Southeast Asia. 
But here's the thing is we increasingly take a militaristic approach. Uh, we see China taking an altogether different approach, but I think you can characterize both as colonialism where we're going with the big stick and militarism. They're taking the sugar daddy route because China, the sugar daddy <laughs> route, yes, really? the sugar daddy route. China has become Africa's largest trading partner by far. Uh, cheap Chinese goods for African commodities, coupled with massive infrastructure investments, has made China a major force across the continent. But what we're seeing is these infrastructure deals. Of course, you know you've got human rights violations, you've got working rights violations. Some of the loans that are being given to these African com uh, companies have like predatory rates attached to mm. them and stuff. So very much so, Africa is quickly becoming in the pocket of China. Right. So as soon as they default on the loans, what do you do? Now you have this power imbalance and mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of, like you said, in the pocket. So allegedly, we're there to prevent terror. China is looking for economic growth and we're starting to hear rumors of proxy wars and and we see that, you know, China has got the U.N. to allow them to station troops to protect their oil investments and stuff. And and and, and actually, you also got to throw in another wrench because you've got Russia who is down in Africa and they're, you know, again, trying to sell goods. But they're also selling arms to people. Uh -huh. And it looks like Russia is trying to, you know, gain allies to have more votes on their side in the U.N. So and that's a large part of our influence there, too, as well. Right. Selling uh, weapons and and rocket launchers and yeah yeah explosives yeah to, to various factions but you know of course uh uh like always those guns then find themselves in the hands of the wrong people we had uh i believe sent arms to somebody in sudan and before we knew it here's a coup there's a coup everywhere's a coup and boko haram actually has our weapons and they're fighting with uh -huh. them and you know yeah i don't think you can discount uh you know our actions in libya deposing Gaddafi either right right so we're seeing in africa right now uh, something that very much so echoes the colonialism of the uh, you know the 18th and 19th centuries, and we are once again here's the major powers of the world kind of uh, getting their hooks into Africa and getting the commodities and dividing it up and and, and, so and my so question is is why why is this not front page news in the New York Times? Um, you know why why is the mainstream media ignoring this? This isn't something the Trump admin is talking about. Right. Um, we've been doing it since before Trump. Yeah. You know, like 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 Jarvis mentioned, this was 04, 05, 06. Yeah. Um, oh, and not it's to mention, been a long time. A lot of this escalation also took place under the Obama administration. And a lot of what I read was, you know, journalists saying that it's really interesting because it's not that we have a good like America. It's not that we have a good policy or a bad policy in Africa. We seemingly have no policy. Like we have these boots on the grounds and we seem to be increasing them and we seem to be escalating, but, but we don't really have like a visible way forward. In fact, and, and I'm not saying that you can like put this on Trump, but I just want to, for instance, Trump has yet to appoint an assistant secretary of state for Africa. Like we don't really have a diplomat that's focused on Africa right now. That's odd. It, it and, does kind of play into his position of of not letting the world stage know what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, I guess <laughs> that's know? true. I mean, yeah. If there's rising military action and and threats of of conflict, uh, you know, I've I've heard him say many many times uh, that it's dumb to let yeah. your enemies know where you're going. So maybe yeah. that plays into his position. Well, there. I think I think it's more a case. There's stories out there, but I think you have kind of two things at play. I think you. What's happening in Africa is scary. Like I said, it kind of looks like Vietnam. Um, there was some issues with the military not being clear, not being forthright and stuff. Under Obama, there was a reluctance to report that. 
And who could possibly know why that would be? <laughs> uh, under Trump, every day we're hit with tariff wars in Russia and, and all this stuff. And that's one of those things that's kind of getting lost in the shuffle. So I think it's not necessarily um, a concerted effort. Maybe there is to hide what's going on in Africa. But I think it's one of those things that we haven't noticed. Uh, the media is busy with other things. And it might rise up and bite us in the ass before we realize what's happened. Mm. You know? mm. Okay. Uh, so listener Justin, moving on to a little bit lighter fare finally, uh, asks, what is your opinion on the state of Hollywood and their claims that the box office is dying despite growth in attendance and revenue? This is, uh, I, I was actually, I was excited to get this question because it, you know, it being lighter and whatnot. And I actually uh, recently read a crazy article that made me rethink, you know, what I know about Hollywood and what's going to happen going forward. And they, the article points to the idea that Disney is positioning itself, especially with this recent acquisition of Fox, to what if Disney, who's going to put out this this streaming service. Right, they have plans for a big, big Netflix killer. Yeah, released their their blockbuster movies on the streaming service the day it comes out in in theaters. What if they were to do that? For one, that would be a huge draw. It's but never two, been done before. It would absolutely assassinate movie theaters. And here's the thing, as much as, you know, Justin points to a growth in attendance and revenue, in some respects that's true, but theaters overall are still somewhat struggling. They're having a hard time. Sure. And, and it's important to note that theaters actually don't make much money off of the box office, if, if any, actually. Right, it's snacks and popcorn. It's snacks and popcorn, yeah. So when you also have the, the big budget studios who are investing in these movies and sometimes not even breaking even, um, the, the big theater, you know, the theater portion of entertainment is, is starting to crumble a bit. Well, now we have these streaming services and now Disney owns everything. Yeah. <laughs> They're working yeah, on it's it. It's kind of nutty. So if they start that war, what ends up happening? If Black Panther gets dropped on a Netflix type service on a Friday night, wow, what happens going forward to the theater? I, I think at least for our generation, um, you know, the movie theater is uh it's an icon you know mm -hmm. it's a feeling the big screen the big sound i think for the generation behind us maybe not so much i mean i, I will say there's still drive-ins um scattered around america mm -hmm. that are doing okay yeah um so so maybe you know so maybe we retain movie theaters as this bit of nostalgia yeah. um that keeps people going but I'd say it could very well hurt the theater business. I don't know. We've got a huge theater going up uh, in our city right now. Yeah, you you say that, but I think um, I think that especially with drive through or drive in. Sorry, uh, the allure is their niche status. Of course, they're doing well because they've contracted to a certain point. Well, absolutely. And I think that's what's ultimately going to happen with movie theaters. Because think about this: there are kids watching movies on their phone. Right? Yeah, I can't fathom that. But I have got to realize that I I am getting older, and much in the same way that my mom and, and grandparents were the last vestiges of the people who kept the home phone alive, right? Uh -huh. Like my grandma, you know, oh, you got to have a home phone. You can't you can't just not have a home phone. Yeah, That's kids crazy. these days, you say hang up the phone, they go hang up, the hang phone? it up. What, what are you talking? <laughs> you mean a phone cord? Well, I think that's what's going to happen to us with movie theaters. We're going to be talking about movie theaters. 
they're going to be watching movies on Google Glasses or something, right? On these little screens, and well, you know. truthfully, that that looks like the biggest screen. I mean, if, if you've ever worn a VR headset, no, yeah, uh, it's point. way cooler than being at a big screen. I mean, it yeah. fills up your entire field of vision, mm-hmm. so I can very, very quickly see movie theaters dying out. I don't think Americans are happy about spending eight dollars on popcorn. Yeah, I don't think. They like the idea of paying nine dollars for you know a coke and and some candy. Yeah. Um. In fact, you hear people complain about it all the time, and it's it's part of what's driving the decline in movie attendance. I yeah. think. Um. Of course, you know, most of us just sneak the snacks in uh, <laughs> down our pants anyway. But uh, that also is contributing to the decline of movie movie yeah. theaters. So I don't think there's any way, um, that movie theaters adapt. I mean, but. But that's the thing about an adaptation is it can come out of left field. Yeah, it's true. Um, maybe they maybe they put in VR headsets. You know, yeah. maybe there's some some big revival that comes. They need it. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's fascinating though because I've kind of let this whole thing go by me without noticing. I realized the other day I was dropping three ninety nine on on Amazon rentals. You know, streaming yeah. streaming rentals. And I thought back to the blockbuster days of the specials where you could get you know, two movies for four bucks yeah. and you got to keep them for five days. The yeah. Amazon rental expires in 24 hours. I felt kind of shafted because we, <laughs> yeah. we didn't finish the movie and the next day we go back to finish it and it's already expired. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. you know, that was kind of frustrating to me. And and you got to think for a big company, that looks great. They get to step in to, to Blockbuster's position. Amazon steps into Blockbuster's position, for example, has no brick and mortar stores mm-hmm. to pay for, no right. employees to pay for, aside from the people who are maintaining the data lines, but there are, that's their business. They're already doing that. Um, and they get to charge the same thing, if not more. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases, I think $4 at Blockbuster, that was for new releases. You get old movies for a dollar all day long. So I, I think the profit incentive for your Disney to start a streaming service and, and kill theaters, man, that's a huge incentive. Yeah. I don't think they... Do they care about the theater business? You know, I, they've kept them propped up for years. Is there any loyalty there? I, yeah. You know, I don't know. Well, no, not to mention, I mean, it's it's switching their model onto steady income, right? So now there was actually this big kerfuffle this year because Black Panther was such a huge movie that there were other movies that came out in the time that, you know, after Black Panther's release that should have been much bigger, Ready Player One, a couple other movies. But Black Panther was so big, it just sucked all the wind out of the room. Mm. And now those movies are, are gross. Now, you take that and compare it with, I have monthly subscribers who give me money every month, and all I have to do is keep them coming back. That's right. You know what I mean? I don't have to worry about who's coming out that month. I don't have to worry yeah, about... we don't release, have to plan you know I mean? for the box office. We don't right. have to worry about the weekends. I think, I think it's a shame because, you know, since the, the Marvel... I'm a big nerd, and since the Marvel movies have been coming out... Me and my friends try to go to, you know, each Marvel movie as it comes out and and it's kind of an event. I take my daughter, my daughter's been to most of the Marvel movies with me the day they come out and you know, it's an event, we get to go, we're in the theater and then we come outside, we stand in a circle and talk about like the movie afterwards and like just <laughs> yeah, oh my god, nerd. yeah, yeah, we're like, "Oh, it was so awesome when he did this or that." And this is yet something else that's going to, you know, keep people inside looking at devices. And I understand mm. we're talking about a movie theater, so there's not a big difference. You're looking at a screen, you know, but, it, but it's a social gathering. You yes, know, it's a reason yes. to call your friends and say, Hey, let's do this. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think you're going to have people on, on chat on their phones while they're watching movies, discussing the movie while it's going That's on. True. So That's there may true. be some social aspect uh, retained there, but uh, overall, I think, 
I think movie theaters are going to quickly go the way of drive-ins and be mm-hmm. scattered and, and few and far between. Yep. I, I do. I agree. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Uh, Seth here. He asks, uh, what's the best way to have sustainable ways forward and cut through the spin regarding divisive, passionate, and harmful issues in our society when we so often, and society accepts us, associate other people's deplorable actions with their person as a whole? Uh, for example, saying people are despicable, evil, and deplorable rather than you know calling out the specific action they take. And I, I think that's a really good question, and it's and it's one we've talked about on the show. You know, for instance, the flawed messenger episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best way to move past this is to talk about the phenomenon and figure out the reasons it's harmful and right. peg those reasons down. You know, in in our interpersonal relationships. Um, I think the other really good way is to listen to the Sense and Theory podcast because <laughs> that is directly one of our main goals and missions is to yeah. cut through the bias and extremism <laughs> to find common ground. What a, that what brings a clever us way together. to get this plug in there, man. I am proud of you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a deep question because at the same time, there there are actions that an individual can take you know, like we talked about in that episode that, that I feel like warrant a disconnection mm-hmm. in a sense. Now, I think that also comes with the responsibility of welcoming or being able to welcome those people back into the fold when, when they've changed their minds. And just for clarity, you're talking about like dog kickers. I'm talking about yeah. dog yeah. kickers. I'm talking about Daryl Davis. I'm talking about uh, Dia Khan mm. with uh, White Right meeting the enemy. Like, like sure, you can, you can call someone evil for their beliefs. But at the same time, we have to accept that that evil is not a static monolith. It's not unchanging. Um, and I think that we ought to be heavily engaged in, in bringing those people that we deem evil back into the fold mm-hmm. um, and pulling them away from those ideas. And, and I think we've got a blueprint for it. I think no. Daryl Davis shows us a blueprint. I think Dia Khan shows us a blueprint. And, and hopefully those people influence uh, more people to do that. And and we'll talk about them on the show, and you should support them, and you should buy their books, and you should watch their movies. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think yes, we do have to talk to people and get a better understanding to kind of sharpen down on that. Like what I think helps, especially when we're talking about you know super divisive and passionate issues, is understanding somebody's motivation. Now, you know, somebody might be saying, "I think we should cut taxes," or "I think we should increase taxes." And you might have your own opinion on, you know, whether or not that's a good idea. And you think, oh, well, cutting taxes or increasing them, that's terrible. That's going to lead us to ruin and stuff. But when you realize that this person honestly and passionately feels like this is the case. And if I don't do this, harm will come to my family or my friends or stuff like Then you begin to see that, you know, everybody is is really just working uh, from the same emotional aspect, from Mm. the same passion you know, the same need to protect or the need to see the way forward. And it becomes just an intellectual case. After that, it's, it's, it's more like a, a, an academic thing that, you know, we can disagree on. We can sit here and play with numbers and twiddle and stuff. But now we're not screaming at each other because we both understand we want what's right. And, and I know? think on taxes, that works really well. When we talk about issues that start to cross like moral and religious grounds, uh, say abortion, I think that's a lot harder to do. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because I think abortion specifically, I'm, I'm going to break it down right here. When you understand that one side thinks that you are murdering people and the other side thinks 
that you are trying to take away a human's right to govern their body. Or even when I when I put it in terms like that, it's very easy to have sympathy for both sides okay. and say we've got to find a position in the middle. I mean, you you make me an argument against, you know, someone should not have control over their their body. Their yeah. body, man. You make me an argument for we should be killing people, right? It's hard to do because that's a, that's a complex, you know, motivation there. And I think once we understand that, then that lets us put it back into, again, into a more, you know, academic, uh, intellectual In, conversation. Into a frame that we can, we can come to compromise on and right. understand that we're compromising because both sides have some validity. Yeah. It's not that the one side wants to kill people or that the other side wants to abridge body autonomy. It's that that other concern to them feels a little bit more important. Mm. So let's find a way to meld it. You know? Right. No, I totally get it. Um, so moving on to our final question of the day, Richard asks, will a significant number of Trump supporters ever come to the belief or realization that he is not an effective leader and <laughs> president and that much of his leadership style and approach and many of his policies are doing damage to our nation? What percentage, how soon is it already happening? Yeah. Well, I think here's the thing. So first off, I acknowledge that I accept this question because overall, I think Trump is bad for the country, right? <laughs> I, I, I do see people who might quibble with the question and say, well, you know, not all of his policies, some of his policies are great and stuff, but overall, I think it's a net loss. Yeah, right? so let's, I think we both agree. Let's, there. let's slide that to the side. Um, so when we start talking about Trump supporters, I think you have to separate them out. Will the QAnon Trump supporters ever come to that realization? No. No, because they're caught up in a trap. Yeah. Um, because QAnon is going to keep saying things like, oh, just wait till next week. Something yeah. big is coming, folks. Oh, nope. We need the we need the next election to really get us there. And or, we're just we're just around the corner. No, he's got to increase no knock warrants so that that way we can stop the pedophiles. Whoa. You know I, mean? I mean, that's 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 what's going to happen there. Uh, with the the base that isn't the QAnon base, like the, the hardcore Trump supporter who really believes it, I still think the answer is no. He doesn't ever really come over because he's always or she is going to be convinced that no matter what goes wrong in the Trump presidency, it's due to the fake news media or it's due to, you know, not in a conspiracy sense, but it's due to the globalists or the uh -huh. communists or the postmodernists or, you know, what have you. But then I think there is a large swath of people who voted for Trump and therefore can be called Trump supporters who are going to either come over to uh, the, the, you know, the opposition side, the Democratic side, or maybe Libertarian, maybe Green Party, maybe stay home. Yeah. And I think those are the people who either A, voted for Trump because they did not want Hillary, which I think there are a sizable amount of people who exist that took that position. And I think also, as we touched on in episode nine, People who bought into the populism, not all of them are QAnon or base supporters. There are people out there who are like, he's the one that's talking about doing something for my job. Right. And when just recently GE closed a plant in Harley Wisconsin. Davidson closing you know up shop. I mean, enough of those happen and they realize, well, okay, yeah, he, he talked about that, but he doesn't really know how to save my job. You know, right. what I mean? to me, it's the same thing as Obama coming and saying he's going to close Guant Guantanamo Bay. Right. And it never happens. Of course, people are going to be disillusioned when yes. you, when you look at the evidence, barring some kind of, you know, magical return on, on Trump's 40 chess moves. Yeah, uh, I think people are going to be looking at their position really seriously come 2020. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people are going to 
feel like they got stiffed. Yeah. Now, the where Richard really makes this question complicated is when he says, what percentage and how soon is it already happening? Yes, I think it's already happening. Um, as far as like how soon will we see a massive rebuke of Trump? Man, here, here's the thing. If, if we're talking about like, I don't know what's going to happen here at the midterms. I'm, I'm having a really hard time like getting my head around it. I can tell you this. Does Mueller drop the goods? Unless we, unless we have yeah some more goods from Mueller, I can tell you this. Historically, incumbents win re-election. Mm. So it's going to take something to a, a big, a, a pretty good-sized bombshell to derail him in 2020 if things operate the way that they always have. I'd like to see some kind of dark horse, you know, Bernie candidate, not not necessarily with Bernie's policies, but I'd like to see a a legitimate candidate come out of nowhere that that combines the best aspects of both parties. Yeah. Will we see it? I don't know. If we see that, I think we've got a good chance of Trump being gone in 2020. That's true. If the Democrats put up wishy-washy establishment candidates, I think much of the resentment lingers. Um, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people are going to stay home. A lot of people yeah. are going to say, well, I really don't like Trump, but I really don't like these guys either. Yeah. And they're, and they're going to stay home. I mean, we're talking about 50% voter turnout already. It's on the decline. Yeah. Um, you know, what's stopping that from going even lower? Nothing. No, you know? no, I agree. And, and like I say, I'm going to push for Trump to be gone in 2020. I mean, that's, that's what I want. I want Trump gone in 2020. I'm just saying that it's going to be an uphill battle, especially with the way that America is with incumbents and with what I see to me, at least I look at the Democratic Party and I see them playing right in to the the worst aspects of the, you know, playing into the strategy that is going to benefit Trump. the most. Sure. I've seen tons of Republicans go, hey, we need more Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, exactly. Come on, guys. Keep putting up those Ocasio-Cortezes. Come on, guys. Exactly, man. So I want to thank you guys again for all of your questions. If we didn't get to your question this episode, uh, we'll put it in the bag for next time and uh, we'll make another call out because I actually liked the format of this. Uh, uh -huh. Had a lot of fun with it. I got to put off all my hard work on theory. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll definitely be doing that again. Well, you were, you were just too kind, my friend. But yeah, everybody, bear in mind that, you know, like he said, we didn't get to everybody's question today, but... A lot of these questions that we read and the ones that we didn't read have given us all kinds of ideas for episodes going forward. So, yes, there's probably going to be a conspiracy episode at some dun, point. Dun, but dun. there's also a number of subjects that you guys touched on, suggested, and uh, we are going to do our best to, you know, live up to our word, take your suggestions, comments, critiques, and turn it into show output. So, you know, keep doing that stuff, guys. Absolutely. Uh, and without further ado, I think we are going to kick it over to Beanzo, our fact checker extraordinaire. Since we thoroughly researched this episode, I'm <laughs> sure he's got no giant gaping holes to rip open and expose us. Oh, yeah. Um, but let's see what he's got. Beanzo. Oh, yeah, since I have to look far and wide to rip a gaping hole in this episode for sure. An episode where you announce a substantial increase in listeners and then criticize QAnon for unverified claims. Yeah, you guys are in an unassailable position here. I mean, you learned Dia Khan's name. Clearly you guys have turned over a new leaf. Of course, forgetting her name is something I've criticized you for previously, so that would seem to prove that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Or should we go with that butchered light versus dark thing you said since? Hey, now I'm getting in the spirit here. Asking you guys questions is fun. And I got a few of the listeners left out. Theory? 
Why do you trail off every sentence? And what's the deal with the yeah, nah, and nah, yeah thing, man? Fellas, do you care to comment on your excessive use of insidious baby out with the bathwater? Saying mm hmm repeatedly when you don't even agree with what the other guy's saying? Theory's new I think, I think habit? Since his apparent insatiable need to tell us how he's ill-suited for this podcast. The way you guys... Okay, okay, buddy. I think we get it. Yes, you've made your point. Thank you, Beans. No, you, you know what? I've got some questions, man. How come sometimes it takes you 45 minutes to get from one statement to the next? How come you always got to talk about my hey, mama? Hey, we, we got to work with him. We've got a contract. Chill out for a second. I'll tell you what the real question is. Why was it 2015... Before the first picture of Taylor Swift's belly button okay, quest- came to life. Questions were a terrible idea. This was, God, what have we done? Hey, folks, I'm Sense, one half of the Sense of Theory podcast. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening. Uh, it's your time and attention that makes this show worthwhile. Uh, we do the show for you and our listeners. Um, I'd ask you to leave a review, good or bad, on iTunes. Uh, Come check us out on the various social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find the links uh, in the description to the show. And uh, if you want to reach out with a comment, uh, joke, uh, funny anecdote, uh, you want to call me an idiot, uh, sensetheorypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks again, folks, and we'll see you next week.